how to hold the heart alive, but as George MacDonald said, as an empty cup ready for God to fill is probably one of the greatest difficulties, beauties, disciplines, arts, secrets, answers of the Christian life. In this series we've been doing on the Sacred Romance, you're going to hear today session nine, where Brent Curtis is speaking on desert communion, how to find God in those desert places. We've been talking about a love affair that goes on between God and us. It's been going on since before the foundation of the world. A love affair where the God of the universe desires heart intimacy with us. And yet, it struck me not so long ago in my Christian life that, you know, I'm just going to arrive on the shores of heaven as kind of a mail-order bride. I mean, God has probably seen my picture in the catalog. I certainly have heard a few stories about Him But the amount of time I've spent really communing with God in my life is very small, to be honest. I've been a Christian uh, some 24 years now, and most of the communion I think I've had with the Lord God in my heart has been the last three or four years. Any relationship that's going anywhere, any healthy one, is moving towards the consummation of the love relationship spiritually, emotionally, and physically, right? If we think about the first question in the major confessions of faith, what's the chief end and purpose of man? It varies. The words are a little different, but to know or to worship, to know God and enjoy knowing Him forever. But when we think of that word know, to know God, so often our thoughts go to learning more about Him. We kind of stifle a sigh and think about what book or tape we might pick up to learn more about God's attributes and, you know, how he might operate. But what if we were just sitting and listening to a conversation in a cafe, kind of overhearing it, it was between a fiancé and her espoused, and it kind of went like this, and we're just over eavesdropping. She says something like, I'm so looking forward to our wedding day, dearest. I really do love you so much. I really wish I could see more of you. There's so much about you I want to know better. And he says, yes, dear, I know. I'm going to send you a book that describes more about my life. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. And she responds, I'll be glad to read it, but I just want to hold your hand. She continues with just a a little bit of a smile. I just want to kiss you. And he says, I'm sure you do, beloved. Let me send you a tape describing the place of physical affection at different stages of courtship. You'll find it worthwhile, I'm sure. She, somewhat disappointed, responds, Well, that's wonderful, darling, but it's just that I look so forward to our wedding day. I want to be with you so badly. I think of us being, you know, together. And he says, Yes, intimacy is important. I'd like to send you to a weekend seminar that really should be quite helpful. Well, about this time, most of us would say, Why doesn't she dump this stiff and find somebody that's still breathing? And yet... That is so often the way we go about our relationship with God, isn't it? In that same kind of a way. But listen to another conversation between two lovers where he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. I couldn't pull that off, but he could. And she responds, how handsome you are, 
my love. How charming. And our bed is verdant. And he says, show me your face and let me hear your voice just for a moment. For your voice is so sweet and your face is lovely. Your mouth is like the best wine. And she responds, may the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over your lips and teeth. I belong to you and your desire is for me. Come, love. Let's go to the countryside and spend the night in the villages. Isn't that a conversation that really does begin to pique your interest, to take your breath away about what might go on in the countryside between these two lovers? Most of us would run to meet God like that if we knew where to start looking. But where can we find him with that kind of intimacy? And two, we don't go from being just strangers, a mail-order bride, to lovers overnight. There's the intimacy of platonic friends, father and son, father and daughter. Nonetheless, the image of a wedding, which is a little harder for us to deal with as men than for you ladies, is the kind of love, the kind of communion that God pictures in his desire for us. And so that's what we have to be thinking about as we're thinking about courtship with God, is communing with him in that kind of an intimate way. What kind of a courtship are we to expect with God? When we think of him, we probably picture him being kind of flashy, right? The way at least a lot of us guys tried to be when we were dating back in those days when flashiness was possible. I remember Jenny, my wife, my first real date with her was a canoe trip on one of the small rivers in southern New Jersey. She and I were both teaching school at the same place, and several of the faculty and students were going on a canoe trip together. And so we were sailing down the river, and I was thinking to myself, how could I impress her? And just about then, I saw a big tree in front of us with a large limb overhanging the river. And I thought to myself, I bet she would be very impressed if I stood up in the canoe, leaped up, grabbed this limb, and swung up and then called to her. And she would marvel at my athletic prowess. <laughs> so when we arrived at just about the right place, I leaped up, grabbed the limb, my fingers slipped off, and fell into the river. <laughs> I don't think she was very impressed by my attempts. I don't think that's why she married me, actually. But you kind of wonder, is that, is that what God is like? When we think of God just courting the Israelites, he did some pretty flashy things. There's visions of angels descending and ascending that he showed to Jacob and parted the Red Sea for Moses and made the sun stand still for a whole day just so the Israelites could win a battle. But you kind of wonder what he's like when you're alone with him. Would he just stay the life of the party, still playing to the crowd? How do we really commune with God when it gets right down to it? How do we have intimate conversation? There's two images from the scripture that give us a beginning picture. One is that when we get to heaven, God will give us a white stone with a name on it that only he knows. That's the expression of the deepest part of who we really are and an expression of his heart towards us. And the second image comes out of the story of Elijah. You remember he was the prophet that killed all of the prophets of Baal, and Jezebel, the queen, was out to kill him for doing that to her prophets. And so he had been on the run for quite a while, and God had ministered to him, actually uh, brought him food and water, 
and yet he was still running, and he finally made his way to Mount Horeb and holed up in a cave there, and was just worn out from doing, from just being a prophet of God. And God passed by the mouth of the cave, and first there was a great wind, and it says God's voice was not in the wind, and then there was an earthquake, and it says God's voice was not contained in the earthquake, and then there was a fire, and God wasn't there either. And finally, there was a still small voice that spoke to Elijah in his heart, and in that voice was God speaking to him. The way God desires to speak to us all is in the voice in our heart, everyone. He's not out there somewhere, typically. He doesn't show up in a vision in the sky, although he can do that. He really communes with us through the voice in our heart. What do you hear when you listen to that voice in your heart? What goes on? What I so often hear is just restlessness, scatteredness, a thousand different thoughts, wondering what people think of me, what I think of them, anger, lust, ego, or just simply blank spirit. That's what I hear when I listen. And I wonder, how do I hear God's heart in all of that? The language and clatter of all my other lovers is just so loud. I, whoever I am, just seem invisible in all the noise. Theologians call that the sense that when we stop and listen, we almost don't seem to feel ourselves existing. They call that ontological lightness, which just means there's, there seems to be nothing substantive inside that I can really define as me. And so I really can't communicate because I don't know what me is really feeling. Our whole American culture is just infected with ontological lightness, if you'll bear with that term. And celebrities and pro athletes are kind of the best example of that. They're anchored only to their performance. As soon as they stop, who remembers them? Who remembers Pete Rose? A few baseball fans, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And yet, as soon as he stops performing, his identity becomes invisible. And ours who worship them as men, if we haven't kind of anesthetized ourselves and dropped out of the larger story already, we kind of tend to anchor ourselves in some form of competence. I was reading an interview with uh, David Letterman about two or three years ago, I guess it was now, and he said he only feels good as a man, remarkable honesty, uh, depending on how the last show went. If it went well, he feels good. If it didn't go well, he said it, his flesh almost crawls waiting for the next show so they can find a sense of who he is again. For women, if they haven't kind of gone over to competing against men and all the ways that sometimes feminism suggests that that had happened, so many times a woman just depends on her external beauty for her uh, sense of identity. There's a story about Marilyn Monroe that long after she was famous, she would put on a black wig and just go out to bars and see if she could pick up men uh, without them knowing who she really was? What's the question in her heart as she did that? Something about, do I have any substance? Do I have any identity that really would draw you to commune with me? And, of course, it killed her in the end. She never found the substance of who she was, no matter how many men she was able to draw to herself. 
And even as Christians, have you ever noticed that when you pray sometimes, so often that when I pray, especially the prayers that go like, God, will you help me to be a better husband? Sometimes, not always, but those prayers just seem like they originate right about at my skin level. They seem to leave something so untouched inside, something about my stubbornness or my inertia or my fear about why I don't want to move as a husband. Sometimes my prayers don't touch those things, but that's, what's, that's what my heart is really trying to tell me about. So I pray the prayer, nothing changes, because I haven't really gone deep enough into my heart to know what the issues are as to why I don't move towards my wife in a different way. And even sin and sinning is just a way of anchoring ourselves, as we've been trying to say, in a small romance that will give us a moment's satisfaction. And yet it leaves us feeling so hollow and diminished, doesn't it? We often say what a shell someone has become after they've lived a lifestyle of sin and uh, that they've lost what made them substantially human. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, have many of you read that? There's just this great scene in there where there's a busload of people coming up from hell. Theology may not be too great, but the image is. And they're going to get one last chance to see if they would like to stay in heaven. And as the bus is coming up, they're all squabbling out of their small stories, whatever they lived in on the earth, whether it was money or their looks or uh, their manipulation of their children or whatever it was. And the bus comes up through a crack in the ground and stops on the outskirts of heaven. Door opens. The people begin to get off the bus, and they're just shadowy wraiths because living the life of small stories has robbed them of their substance. And as they step out on the grass of heaven, the blades of grass are so dense, it pierces their feet, and they can hardly walk from the pain of it. And that's just such a great illustration of the way the spiritual life feels to us when we're operating from that place of ontological lightness. The spiritual life feels heavy, burdensome, Everything we're asked to do feels so dense and weary. We cannot live in the spiritual world without finding our substance. It is crucial. But what's the path to that? How do we go about becoming substantive? The answer is a little surprising, and the first clue starts with Jesus' invitation that most of us are familiar with in Matthew 11. Never understood it very well, just in beginning to. Jesus says this, the surprising path to being substantive. Come to me, everyone who is worn out and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Becoming substantive Learning to walk in the fields of heaven has something to do with rest. But I find myself saying at about that point, Jesus, I don't know how to rest in you. When I reach out and try to commune with you, all I can see and hear are the outstretched arms of all my other lovers clattering through my brain, my mind. I don't feel rest at all. Where are you in all this confusion? Several years ago, kind of worn out by some of the spiritual battle I described earlier, I just found myself saying one night, Jesus, if you really abide in me through your Holy Spirit, who is my comforter, right? That's 
one of God's major desires in our hearts? Why is it that I often feel so alone and you seem so far away? And what came to me in response were these words in my heart, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, Brent, you can't do this. Living spiritually, everyone, requires something a lot more than just not sinning or doing good works. Jesus was saying to me, I think, in order to live in the kingdom of heaven, you have to abide in me, Brent. Your identity is in me. We've all heard that so many times, haven't we? But what does that really mean? As I thought of those things, I asked myself the question, well, if I don't abide in Jesus then, where is it that I abide? And I begin to kind of listen to the journey of my soul whenever I felt troubled. And people have always told me that I tend to be cynical, but I never thought about that in terms of an abiding place. But what I noticed is this. I would feel anxiety. I would feel a longing for connection or communion. If that didn't come, the next thing I would start saying in my heart were sentences like, life really stinks. Why does it always have to be so hard? I hate this. Oh, the heck with it. It really doesn't matter. And by the time I was saying that last sentence, you know what I felt? Better. Better. And then I kind of noticed from there, there were a whole bunch of perks were made available to me that I couldn't use before. Kind of a little bit of uh, sexual titillation through a video that I might not normally rent, or maybe uh, an extra glass of wine with dinner where I might only usually drink one, or an Arnold Schwarzenegger violence video to just let it all out. My comforter, my abiding place was cynicism, my less wild lover. It literally was a spiritual abiding place that I had learned to go to somewhere in my life, a less wild lover that comforted me much like a mistress. And if we listen to the journey of our heart, we all have those abiding places. Think for just a moment of where you go with your heart when it's troubled or anxious or weary or empty. Wherever that is, that's your abiding place. And it has a spiritual quality to it. It's not just a bad habit. Final light for me, maybe not the final light, but one other light went on one evening uh, on this whole matter when I was reading John 15 in the message. And Eugene Peterson translates Jesus' words on abiding this way. If you make yourself at home with me, and my words are at home with you, then you can be sure whatever you ask will be listened to. Gosh, what a thought. God, you will actually listen to me. You will actually care and acted upon. Wow, you won't only listen, but you'll actually respond. What an amazing thought. It was like Jesus was saying to me in answer to the question I'd asked several weeks before that, I've made my home in you already, Brent but you have other abiding places that you go to. The issue now is that you must make your home in me. 
And that answered the question of how Jesus could be inside my heart and yet often feel so far away and so distant because I simply didn't go to him. It also dawned on me that holiness, surprisingly, comes not out of more doing, more effort, but out of simply staying at home. Do you all have good friends that you can just kind of sit in the same room with and both read a section of the sports page or the funny paper and you kind of know you don't even have to talk with each other and you just feel totally comfortable just being there? That's what Jesus was inviting me to. That's his invitation to all of us. But that brings up another thought, doesn't it? How comfortable are we doing that with anyone? I'm not even that comfortable doing that on an elevator without looking at the floor, and I don't even know those people. What if Jesus were sitting in the room and he says, well, Brent, what are you thinking about? And I would say, well, I don't know. I was just thinking about how I could torture my neighbor to death slowly because I hate his guts because of the way he lets his kids run rampant in our neighborhood. And I was wanting to make his death as painful as possible. So, you know, his thoughts were just kind of running across my mind. I mean, is, is that the kind of thing that we want to share with Christ? And yet, that's exactly what he's saying. Be at home with me. I know where you are. Just talk to me. St. Teresa of Avila, 16th century saint, said, God and our hearts really do understand each other. It's like the experience of two persons here on earth who love each other deeply and understand each other well, and even without signs, just by a glance. They know each other's hearts. And yet, what do we so often do when the voice in our heart tells us we're tired out or anxious or lusting or wanting to murder our neighbor? All the things we don't think God would want to hear about? We try to pretend it's not there. Or we enter into some form of doing, you know, get more religious to try and solve the whole thing. There's this great picture in Isaiah 57 where God comes to Israel and speaks to her as his lover, his beloved. Israel at that time in her history was surrounded by enemies. She was fearing invasions from all different directions. And she was doing everything in her power to head it off. She was sending out emissaries and ambassadors and gifts and bribes and using every asset she had to try to hold on to her identity as a nation And God comes to her and says this, and hear him speaking as a lover to his beloved. You went to Moloch with olive oil and you increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away and you descended to the grave itself. You were wearied out by all your ways, but you just wouldn't say, it is hopeless. You found ways to renew your strength and so you would not faint. Whom have you feared and dreaded that you have been false to me and have neither remembered me nor considered this in your heart? Is that not a strange question, that last one, if he's just talking about religious obedience? Think for a moment, if you were a husband or a a boyfriend or a close friend, and you came to find out that the one you loved had been being harassed by a stalker for months and had been getting calls in the middle of the night, had been scared to death, had gone to the police, had talked to neighbors, and once had even literally been accosted by this stalker in a parking lot who had knocked her down, kicked her. She never told you about it. She never came to you. She never said anything. How would you feel? 
as the husband or boyfriend or friend of that person? Would you not feel betrayed? Would you not feel a sense of, why did you never come to me? Don't you know I care? Don't you know I would have helped? I would have done everything in my power to protect you. That's what God was saying to Israel. And that brings up another word about what repentance really is, something very surprising. It has much more to do with fainting than it does picking up our activity and trying harder. Fainting and just going to Christ and saying, Jesus, this is what's on my heart. Here it is. Listen to me. Respond to me. That's what Jesus promises he'll do. And that's really the story with all of our small stories. To make our way through life with whatever assets we have, we kind of try to put them all together, whether it's public speaking or you know, being good with computers or good with cars or good with sports. And we try to patch together this thing that can kind of make our way through without needing God. That's the tragedy of our small stories. I guess it's been, what, three or four years now when John and I were doing this seminar for the first time. We did it in Glen Airy down in Colorado Springs. One night after uh, John had talked the week before, a friend of mine came up in the bagel shop, and I was sitting there kind of getting some thoughts ready for the next week. And she said to me, boy, Brant, you better come up with something really good because my husband said John's talk changed his life last week. You know what I felt? What if I'm only the second best speaker in this two-speaker series? (laughs) Another thing I felt, which doesn't make a lot of sense at first, is shame. Another thing I felt was, well, okay, wait till they see the movie clips and songs I come up with this week. I will read every book on spirituality ever read in the next six days. I will come up with a talk so good that John will have nothing left to say the week following. That's really sad, isn't it? But can you feel my heart just beginning to race and trying to put together something that might earn me someone's affection? You know, just a chance to be someone's hero somehow. Just kind of the ugliness of that whole thing. In fact, it's still a little embarrassing to talk about, but I find the best way to diminish or break the power of your smaller story is to give it away, to just admit it. What I did do after all my craziness is to get up, leave the bagel shop, and I went out to this green space that's near our house, and I just began to walk. And I had the sense that the shame going on inside and some other things that were too deep down to even put into words that had been triggered by my friend's comment had more to do with just what had happened that day, that somehow it went back to when I was very young. And I just began to walk feeling really troubled and think this is ridiculous to be a man at my stage in life feeling that petty. And so I just began to walk just saying a scripture in my mind, Jesus, you are faithful to forgive me for all of my sins. You are faithful to cleanse me from all of my sins. 
I didn't try to exegete it. I didn't try to analyze it. I just let it linger between my head and heart for whatever God wanted to do with it. And as I walked, I began to feel something breaking up inside. This is so hard to put words to these things. It just felt like Jesus was touching something deep inside that had been hurting for a long time. There were no words of rebuke or, yeah, that's pretty ugly, Brent. You'll have to kind of cut that out. If I were to try to bring up into my head the things that were going on in my heart, I think it was something like this. Brent, I know you've always wanted to be someone's hero. And that's true of every man, as John said. I understand your pain. It's all right. Rest in my love. There was no mention of my sin, no mention of my self-absorption. And when I put all that into words, it really brought tears because I think I really understood for the first time what the cross has really done. It has really removed sin as an issue between Christ and us. When he comes, it's to talk to us about the thirst of our heart. He knows what goes on, and he knows we know. But his love for us is about our thirst and about our pain. That's the thing that he wants to commune with us most about. The very thing we are most fearful of talking with him about. The thing that we would rather do any religious activity rather than admit. The beauty of the gospel, everyone, is that repentance is just inviting Christ to meet us right where we are without any camouflage, and that's rest. I'd just like to do a, a, a moment of an exercise with you, a spiritual exercise. I'd just like you to kind of, if you can, feel what's going on in your heart even right now, whether it's weariness or attentiveness or energy or loneliness or whatever it might be. Listen to what your heart is telling you. Try to put words to it. If you want, take a scripture like, Jesus, your mercies are new every morning, and just let it linger near your heart, even as your heart speaks. But just let this be a time to commune with your heart and with Jesus in any way you would see fit. Whatever you felt your heart saying to you, whether just a peace and a communion with Christ or just scattered blankness of spirit, Jesus loves you deeply in that very place. And you do not have to be anywhere else to talk with him. That is the secret of rest. It is the secret to becoming substantive and how in spite of all the burdens of life, our yoke really does become lighter as we learn that communion. When we learn to commune like that, everyone, we are truly living on the very outskirts of heaven itself. And the blades of grass begin to not puncture our feet like they once did. Close to the shores of heaven, every once in a while, 
an exotic breeze really does reach us that feels like it's from heaven itself, doesn't it? Just like to, to close my talk and lead into John's by talking about experience that I had that just felt so close to what heaven is going to be like. And a few years ago, my family and I, my wife Jenny and my two boys, were taking a trip to the Grand Canyon. And if you go from the Arizona route, some of you may have been there, it is a hot, dry, dusty ride in the summer or even in the spring. And we were wondering after baking out there for about 12 hours and our boys were being at their worst for about six hours in a row, why we ever came on this trip. And then we kind of started going up through the pine forests in northern Arizona where the Kaibab Peninsula Plateau kind of raises up. And as you move up into the pine, you just begin to smell the scent of the pine trees. It just becomes an exotic aroma. I'd never been to the canyon before, and I'd seen pictures of it, but I still remember coming up to the edge of the rim, getting out of the car, and standing there for the first time. And the canyon just came on us in this lavender and pink and yellow beauty, this hugeness that was so exotically beautiful. I just broke down and wept without really knowing why. They weren't sad tears. It was something about the depth of the beauty. And I knew we had many days ahead. Uh, we had a room at the big end there on the, on the rim to explore and adventure and just sit and talk to each other in the big rockers on the front porches. That is a picture of heaven, which is the subject of John's talk to end our time. Learning the secret of desert communion is probably one of the lost great treasures of the Christian life. And before we even found these tapes and before we even decided to re-air these, this was actually something that God has been reworking on in my life in the last couple months, this very subject. So it's just so timely to, you know, here it is back from 1997 and yet so very, very current today. That was Brent Curtis, as I said, teaching on Desert Communion, and it's the second to last in our series on the sacred romance here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast.